Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Philippians. We are still in chapter one, although we're finishing out chapter one today, verses 27 to 30. And while you're turning there, let me remind you, if you did not get a copy of this book right here, this Philippians journal, we would love for you to have one. I believe we still have some copies out there in the atrium. What I appreciate about this is there's plenty of space to take notes on the text, underline, mark it up. I hope you'll bring a pen with you to do that. And then on the right, you've got a blank space over here to write. Today, we're gonna be drawing a little bit. It really enables us to interact with the text at a deeper level. So I hope that you'll follow along with that as well. Now. Here's where we are in the book. Just to recap, Paul is writing from prison, most likely in Rome. He's in chains, and yet what he's saying to this group of of believers back in Philippi is, my chains have served to advance the gospel. So Paul's mission of evangelism is flourishing, not in spite of his chains, but because of his chains. We know this particular church had a special place in Paul's heart. They were his closest friends of anyone that he ministered to. That just sort of seeps out of the letter uh, in many of the verses here. And last week, if you missed it, Lloyd taught a fantastic lesson that gets into one of the most profound theological sections of the book, where Paul is wrestling out loud through this letter on whether he should live or whether he should die. And of course, ultimately, it's not his choice. It's God's will, and it's, you know, God carrying out his will through the, um, uh, the, the process that he was in there with the Roman um, uh, judgments. And yet Paul's able to say this, whether I live or whether I die, I can rejoice. And the key verse there from last week, verse 21, for me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lloyd had three lessons at the end of his message. All of them were very good. This one stood out to me. One must see death as Paul saw death to live life as Paul lived life. The challenge at the end of last week's message was to experience joy by living for someone else's progress and joy in the faith. And I hope some of you in the room took that seriously last week and just said this week, you know, remember Lloyd asked you to he said, God's gonna put someone on your heart for you to live for them this week, live for their progress and joy in the faith. And uh, that's the path of joy. It's the path of Jesus, laying down our lives for others. This morning, we're gonna wrap up chapter two with a significant section because this is the point in the text where Paul shifts from talking about him to now encouraging them the church in Philippi. He's gonna give them some instruction. He's gonna give them some admonishment. In fact, he's gonna start off right here in verse 27 saying, essentially, if you only do one thing, do this. Let's take a look. We'll, we'll all start by reading the first two verses and then we'll read the next two verses in a bit. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, there, there he's saying, whether I live or whether I die, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
So once again here, we see Paul's tremendous emphasis on the gospel and the person of Jesus. And I'm just gonna mark these references as, as I've been doing as we've gone through the text. You have gospel of Christ. So we mark gospel with a cross in a circle and then Christ with a cross. And then down here again at the end of verse 27, a reference to the gospel. I believe it was every two and a half verses, Paul is mentioning Jesus or he's mentioning the gospel. And that just stands out to me as we've been studying this book together. The big idea of our passage this morning is right here in the first phrase. I'll put a box around it so it can stand out. If you want to follow along, you're welcome to do that as well. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I told you this is sort of the, if you don't do anything else, do this moment for Paul. We get that from the word only. It's a simple little word in Greek, but it carries this idea of, this one thing alone, you know, it's just, it's just stop, hear this. You just kind of imagine Paul dictating this letter, you know, changed as he was to a, a Roman guard and probably Timothy or someone like that that would have been writing it down as he dictated. And you almost see Paul stopping and, and just holding up a finger. Only this, just this one thing. And then he goes on to say, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I struggled with that phrase this week as I studied it. Because on the surface, I thought, how in the world could someone's life be worthy of the gospel? And then I thought, well, maybe Paul is just talking metaphorically, or I'm sure there's a lot of grace, which I believe there would be in that phrase. But I still struggled with it. Because I'm so far, and I think y'all would identify with this, so far from saying my life is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is not false humility. This is true reality. My life is so far from being worthy of the greatest thing the earth has ever known, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. This verse flipped around for me when I dug in deeply in, in the, the exegetical work. And you know, exegetical is just a fancy phrase for what we do when we study the Bible. We dig in, we look at each word one at a time. We, we use the tools, we use the commentaries. You know, we look at it in the original language. And, and here's what I discovered when I looked at it in the original language. My mind got blown because there are six words in the English right here. Let your manner of life be that translate one word in the Greek. And the word did not mean what I thought it meant. Reminded me of that great scene from The Princess Bride. You, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. In this case, I don't like the translation. And, and I don't say that with arrogant pride. I mean, these guys are brilliant scholars that translate these things. They work in teams. They put a lot of talk and energy and time into these translations. But when I dug into it in the Greek, I realized there's something that's missing here that I hope to bring out. The one Greek word that they took six English words to translate is the Greek word polytuomai, which you don't need to remember, but I want to just focus on the first two syllables, poly. The prefix poly comes from the Greek word polis, polis. You might pronounce it polis. We get our English politics, metropolis, metropolitan, or even police. 
We get all those English words from that word. What does it mean? It means to be a citizen of. The Greek verb polytuomai means to be a citizen of. So a, a rough way you could translate this would be only live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna write to it, write it this way, just a little bit cleaner in the English. All right. This happened a couple times last service, and I about lost my mind. But I am going to keep going. Joe Blair and I even troubleshot it between services, and it's still doing it. Okay, so the key idea is this. I'm not going to, actually, I will. I'm going to mark gospel. I'm going to mark Christ, and I'm going to mark gospel. Now, here's how I would translate this based on how I now understand this. Only, oops, live, live as worthy citizens. But, but not of worthy citizens of Rome, of the gospel of Christ. Live as worthy citizens of the gospel. Now, here's why that was so profound for me. What I started realizing is Paul was speaking identity into the believers at Philippi. He wasn't saying you need to earn by your manner of life the worthiness of the gospel. He was saying you're a citizen of the gospel. You're a citizen of the kingdom. So live out your life as a worthy citizen. Do this in a way that's inside out living, not outside in living. Paul, think about it this way, was naming their identity and encouraging their behavior to flow out of their identity. And their identity, just like your identity, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of the gospel. We often would say it this way, a citizen of the kingdom. The gospel is the good news of Jesus or the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus is ruler over of, uh, the kingdom of God. It's all the same thing. So to be a citizen of the kingdom is in a sense your truest identity. This is why Christian growth is always inside out, not outside in. You can think of it this way. The whole Christian life is a practice in your doing, catching up to your being. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous. It is imputed on you. That's just a fancy word. That just means it's just placed on you. So you don't earn it. You couldn't do anything to get it. You put your faith in Jesus and the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the benefits, the adoption, the citizenship in the kingdom of God is placed upon you and the rest of your Christian life, you're working for your inside, to, to, you're working for your outside to catch up with your inside. You're, you're working for your... You're doing to catch up to your being. And this is what Paul is saying here. Live as worthy citizens of the gospel because that is who you are. Jody and I are experiencing many parenting adventures in our days, uh, parenting teenagers. We've got an a almost 17-year-old, an almost 14-year-old. I say this because it's birthday season in the sweet home. And then a just turned 11 and by the way, y'all know, those of you that have uh, children, you know the youngest one, if they have older siblings, they're always older than they are. You know what I mean? So they're into the stuff that the older sisters know. So we basically, for all practical purposes, have three teenagers in our home. It's just not formal yet. And here's what I've learned. Um, 
it's much harder than it was when they were little in, in many ways. It, it, it's not as physically exhausting, but it's so much more emotionally exhausting. Y'all, that, I hear pity laughs in the room. <laughs> I think that's what I'm picking up on. So it, it, there are two ways you can parent, okay? And I'm no expert, but trust me. But I've learned this. You can parent outside in, or you can parent inside out. Here's what I mean. Most of my life, I've done outside in parenting. What that looks like is, oh, daughter, you need to conform to an external standard that your mother and I are asking you to live into. And, and by the way, we're not crazy strict, okay? It's just like, do these simple things. Don't do that, do this. Next day. Don't do that, do this. Next day, same thing, same thing. It finally dawned on me, these young angels are followers of Jesus. You know, they are. And, and I'm not, not all parents in the room can say that about their kids, but we're so grateful we can say that. Each of our kids have, have put their faith in Jesus to the best that they knew how and, and the age that they confessed Jesus. Here's what that means. The same spirit of God that's in me is in them. They have been laid on with this righteousness that is not their own, just as I have. And so recently I sat down with, with one. I won't tell you which. And rather than saying, don't do that, do this, I said, what you just did is not who you are. I know who you are. I see in you beauty, righteousness, unselfishness that comes from Christ in you. That is who you are. I don't know if she heard me or not, but she looked at me differently. You guys get that? She looked at me differently. And I thought about this. What is true for parenting, am I living out as a son myself? That I would allow the word of God to come over me, which it clearly does in this context, and call out of me my true identity, Rob. Live out who you are. That stuff you've been doing, messing with over here is not who you are. Live as a citizen worthy of your king. That is who you are. Live out what has been put inside of you by Jesus Christ. That's the message of Paul. It changed this entire passage for me. I think it's particularly significant that Paul uses this verb, live as a citizen of, live out your citizenship in Philippi because this was an area that was very patriotic to Rome. There were a lot of retired military officers that would come. The citizens of Philippi were legit Roman citizens and they took that distinction very seriously. They had a lot of pride in their citizenship. So I imagine Paul writing to them saying, oh yeah, this is a political community. I know what they're living in. I know this kind of context. And Paul's saying, live as a citizen of something higher and more wonderful and, and more challenging yet more glorifying than the Roman Empire. And so the rest of the passage just answers the question, what does that look like to live as worthy citizens of the gospel? That's exactly what the rest of the passage is. There are four things, four characteristics of someone that would say, I'm gonna live as a worthy citizen 
of the gospel. So if that describes your heart this morning, that you desire to live as a citizen, to live out your identity, pay attention. These four things are for you. I'm gonna go through them very quickly. I'm gonna do it in a way that's hopefully a little bit uh, memorable or or creative. As as I thought about doing this, I thought to myself, whoops, I got a little ahead of myself. I thought, how might I illustrate this? And so I I want you, if, if you would like to follow along on the right-hand side where there's all that blank space. I want you to, to write at the top there, citizens of the gospel. And we're gonna draw a little illustration as I unpack these four points that will hopefully make this a little bit memorable. Maybe you can put in parentheses underneath 127 through 30. That's where this is going to come from. Now, underneath that, you're gonna draw this little shield or a little crest. I'm thinking of this as a badge of citizenship. You know, police officers, or you know, maybe some of you grew up as Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, and you earned your citizenship badge. It's a little bit cheesy, but just hang in with me for a minute. That badge is gonna say something on it. It's gonna say like loyalty, bravery, honor, these kinds of things. What would be the words for us if we were to have a badge that marked us as citizens of the gospel? What might those four words be? Paul's gonna tell us. The first one is faithful. So go ahead in the upper right-hand corner, just write the word faithful. There's me four of these, and we're gonna, we're gonna draw them. Uh, that's not the best craft uh, penmanship. You know, you know what that's supposed to say, faithful. All right, let's go back to our text because I want you to see uh, where this comes from. Paul is gonna say, live as worthy citizens of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. That's a faithful posture in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Faithful. We are called to be faithful. The word in English has sort of been diluted to mean somebody who just shows up on time. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. The word literally means full of faith. Faith in who or faith in what is always the question. If someone's faithful, yeah, what do they faith? What do they have for? Are they full of faith in? We are called to be full of faith of the gospel. For the faith of the gospel. There it is right now. So we are to stand firm. We are to strive. I mean, these are strong words, right? These are, these are battle cries in a sense. I don't want you to miss the fact we're being called to something strong. But we are to stand firm and strive for what? Our opinions, our perspectives, our narratives, our you know, dissatisfaction with where our culture is going. No, we are called to stand firm and strive for the faith of the gospel. So I was thinking about this. There's all this side taking going on right now, right? Where do you stand on this issue? Where do you stand on that issue? And and all that's fine. And and to a certain degree, you have to engage these issues just to sort of be a a citizen of, of of, of of our country. But what does it look like to live out our higher citizenship? It means, according to Paul, standing firm and striving for the faith of the gospel. In other words, the message of Jesus Christ. Think about this as an opportunity. In a world that's drawing battle lines over all kinds of things, we proclaim a person. 
in a world that's wrestling over, well, you know, what's your worldview on this? What do you believe about that? Ideas and philosophies and all these things. We proclaim a person, and in fact, we proclaim an event. The gospel of Jesus Christ, a historical event that revolves around a person that means good news for the earth. So application for you, application for me. Sometimes in the, the social media, I, I'm having a hard time going on social media right now and I don't go on it a lot anyway, but it's, it's just difficult for me because here's why. It's hard for me to keep the main thing the main thing. And according to my citizenship in Jesus, the gospel, the main thing is him. The main thing is the news of Jesus. The main thing is the message. That is what we are to strive for. That is what we are to stand firm for when we engage our culture, if we don't do anything else, let us talk of Jesus. Let us talk of Jesus. I've been saddened in my own heart and by what I see outside of me and us, how little the name of Jesus is involved in some of the debates of our time. If we do nothing else, let us speak of Jesus. Without him at the center, there's no good news. There's no hope. So we want to stand firm. We want to strive, and we will here at Fellowship. You can count on it. It will be for the faith of the gospel. That's what we're going to stand firm on. Second characteristic that we see in this text. So after faithful, we're going to see courageous. And so I want, to, want you to write this next to the word faithful if you're, if you're keeping up here. So faithful, courageous, these are our first two. Let me show you from the text where this comes from. It's, it's very clear in verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. I'm gonna underline this so we can focus on it. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. As we are courageous, it's interesting to me that Paul is saying, you're gonna have some opponents. Um, I was driving down the highway, coming back from Atlanta a couple weeks ago, and there was a sign on the billboard that says, one day every knee shall bow, even the Democrats. I don't mean that as a cheap shot. I mean that to say what I, what, I, what I wanted to say was I wanted to say the Democrats are not your opponents. Not in this realm. Not in the realm that really matters, you see. The Republicans are not your opponents. The Democrats are not your opponents. But we do have opponents, don't we? And, and namely, we have an opponent. And, and guys, this is what we want to call us to focus on in this. Now, I do think there was a particular context that Paul wrote this in. I don't think Paul was just talking about Satan and, and his demons. I think there were people that were opponents of the gospel in Philippi. More than likely, these were good Roman citizens that heard the Christians say, Jesus is Lord, and they said, Time out. There's only one Lord, Caesar. 
in that day saying anyone else was Lord could get you thrown in prison, which is what had gotten Paul thrown into prison. So I believe specifically the kind of opponents that Paul is talking about is those that would say, hold on with this Jesus is Lord thing. You're stepping outside of, of the context of who, who's in charge here. And the Christians had to deal with those kinds of opponents. It, it's interesting to me that what Paul says is, you know, if you're courageous, it will be a clear sign to them, your opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation. He's not just trying to rub it in to be like, you know, you know, just rub it in their face. You know, we're going to win. They're going to lose. I don't think that's the spirit that Paul is speaking from here. I think he's actually talking about witnessing. Great courage in the face of persecution is a sign of supreme confidence in your future. When persecution came upon the early Christians, they did not lose their minds. They did not freak out. They didn't say, we got to fight against this persecution. They exercised courage. They, They willingly followed the path of Jesus Christ, who was also persecuted and ultimately put to death. And as Tertullian, one of the early Christian theologians put it, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I know we don't like to think about these things necessarily, but we are a part of a faith that was literally launched through martyrdom. Do you understand? Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he should take up his cross. Guys, they did not hear that with like, oh yeah, I'll take up my cross and put it around my neck and you know, put the sticker on the back of my vehicle. No, no, he was saying, just be ready to die, be willing to die. In our context, we're like, okay, we don't have to worry about that. I mean, you know, you know the culture's changing. There'll probably be some persecution at some point in our context, but we're probably not gonna have to die. Do you know that? No. Do I know that? No. Here's what I will say. When Christians engage persecution with courage, Jesus Christ is glorified. Historically, this has proven true. Some of the most effective witnesses of Jesus have been persecuted Christians and martyred Christians. We could spend much more time in any of these. Uh, I want to get to the third and fourth very briefly. The third characteristic is unity right that there on the bottom faithful courageous actually let's call it united that way my inner grammarian will feel more happy faithful courageous united let's let's go back to our text i want to show you where this is coming from in the text back up in verse 28 standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side side by Side. These are very powerful unity phrases. If you have a pen or pencil, I would invite you to change the lowercase s in spirit to the capital S because the best research I've done, Paul was referring not to the kumbaya spirit of love, but he was referring to the capital H, holy S spirit, the capital spirit. So what makes us united is not the same opinions about things or the way we prefer the same music or we like the same kind of teaching. What makes us united is the Holy Spirit. 
who indwells us. And then he goes on with one mind is a reference to unity in the way we think, in the way we process, but I don't think it means we have to agree on every detail. Clearly the church has not for 2,000 years, but it means we agree on the essentials. We keep the main thing, the main thing, which according to Paul, take a guess, what was the main thing for Paul? Someone shout it out. Yes, the gospel. All right. Every two and a half verses, he's talking about this. Very good. So we're united in one spirit. We keep the main thing, the main thing together with one mind. And then I love this last phase, striving side by side. In the context he was writing, that was probably a reference to the great Roman military units, which would have been such a good analogy for him to use in the context that he was writing to in Philippi. And you know, those, man, those that Roman army, there had never been anything like it. And, and it wasn't just the sheer size of it or it wasn't the, the advanced weapons they had. It was the way they fought in unison. It was the way they figured out to, to keep ranks and, and, and to create formations that were unbreakable with their, you know, all the guys on the inside and the shields on the outside. And so Paul is calling us to that same kind of battle. United. Lone Ranger Christians get picked off. That's just True. We must stay united. So how are we going to live these out at fellowship? Listen, we are going to continue to emphasize our core values, spirit dependence, better together. Those are two of our five core values. We are united by the spirit and we are together focused on the main thing, advancing the gospel and side by side in our partnership. And we live that better together value out from the way we're organized, the elder team of our organization to the way that we teach through team and we lead worship through team and our staff runs through team. And we invite you onto the field to say, come be a team with us. Serve in these places, serve in your community. It doesn't even have to be a fellowship particular ministry. We just want you in the game and let's be together in this. Let's strive side by side for the gospel. This is the mission that Jesus has given us. Finally, there is one more we need to talk about, one more characteristic, the last two verses of our text. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Paul was no stranger to suffering. He was encouraging the Philippian believers to suffer as well. This is where it gets hard, men and women. Citizens of the gospel are faithful, courageous, united, and citizens of the gospel are sufferers. Why is it this way? because Jesus suffered and led us as our elder brother. Why is it this way? Because God saw fit that it be this way. That the body of his son Jesus, both in its physical form and now in its collective spiritual form, the body of Jesus is called to lay down its life for the world. 
Eugene Peterson, the way that he paraphrased this verse says, there's far more to this life than trusting in Christ. There's also suffering for him. And the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. Those of you who have suffered deeply for your faith or in your faith life and have come out the other side, you know that that is true. The gift of the suffering is as much the gift of the trusting. None of us would choose to suffer. None of us would say, I'm gonna go out and find some suffering. Suffering will find you. But when it comes, we follow Jesus in it. Because ultimately, Jesus is our leader in suffering. In fact, Jesus is our leader in all of this. Jesus is the faithful one. He's the courageous one. He's the one whose whose body and blood unites us. And he is the one who suffered for the world. And all we're being asked to do is live out the identity that was put into us through our faith in him. And so I would invite you now to take out the communion elements that you picked up on the way in. If you did not get communion elements, feel free. Don't be embarrassed just to stand up right now and go to the back arcade and, and get them. We would love for you to celebrate this with us if you have put your faith in Jesus. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are welcome here at this table. Go ahead and, and remove that, the top clear cellophane piece and take out the little wafer. Don't eat it yet, but just hold it in your hand. I want to encourage you this morning through this bread that Jesus was the first sufferer of our faith. Jesus is the leader. There is nothing that you have suffered or will suffer that he cannot identify with. May that encourage you this morning as you prepare to eat this bread because what this bread represents is brokenness. Jesus literally, before he gave the bread, he broke it. And it was in the breaking of the bread that Jesus says, this points to what's about to happen to me. My my flesh is going to be torn. My flesh is going to be broken for you, for you. You see, you've been given a gift far before you were ever called to live out anything, it was given to you. And so church, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and his broken body for you, let us eat the bread together in remembrance. And now you can peel that next layer away and reveal the juice that's inside and hold it in your hand for just a moment. When Jesus suffered on that cross, there was a lot of blood involved. It would not have been a sight that anybody would have wanted to look at. And yet, just as Moses held up the serpent in the Old Testament and anyone who looked upon it, they were healed. Jesus was lifted up. It says, all who look to me for healing are healed. Some of you this morning need to look to Jesus for healing. 
healing of your sin, healing of your struggle, healing of your brokenness. There is power in the blood of Jesus Christ that we are remembering this morning to heal you. And I want to encourage you, let's drink this cup with hope and gratitude for the blood of Christ. And now I want to invite you to stand. We're going to worship together. We're going to celebrate together through song. We're going to sing a song. And and, and listen, I want to get you ready to sing this song because citizens of the gospel not only have responsibilities, citizens of the gospel have privileges. And it is our privilege to stand before God the Father with clean hearts not because we have lived righteous, but because Jesus lived righteous and that righteousness has been placed upon us. So I wanna encourage you to sing with joy in your heart, remembering your identity, reveling in your identity and following Jesus, your elder brother, as a citizen of the gospel. Let's worship together.